Any, okay, any other questions in general of what was covered? I've got places we can go, things we can talk about, but questions on Psalm 119. Well, maybe it's not a question, but I have a hard time praying um, the promises with the confidence that this author, I always find that I have to, like, when you make a promise, let me give you an example. Yeah. Like, um, let's say 69, 119.69, um, second part, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Um, I kind of... Say, Lord, please help me to keep my commandments yes. with your whole heart, because yes. I'm unable to. And that's present as well, and it helps make it clear this isn't hubris. I mean, he can talk about how I keep your testimonies, cause me to keep your testimonies. But let me give you one of the interesting examples. And by going verse by verse, you wouldn't see this. You've got to sort of zoom out. So look at um, verse 36. Compare verse 36 with verse 112. So verse 36 says... Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. And then verse 112 says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Well, which one is it? Are you asking God to incline your heart, or are you inclining your heart? I think the answer is, you incline your heart precisely by asking God to do it. So if we don't see, if we see the requests for help as part of the process by which he keeps God's commandments... It's a little less hubris. And so in the context of asking for that help, recognize, incline my heart to your testimonies, which implies my heart naturally might go some other direction. I think that's more of the idea. It's not boasting. It's if part of the process of keeping God's testimonies is crying out for help to keep his testimonies, it makes it a bit more, I will keep your testimonies in my whole heart. Translation, I'll be asking for a lot of help. Yes. Right? Yeah. But no, I, no, I hear you. But I think in the right context, these things are fine. You're right. It could sound boastful. I will do it. I mean, it. I'm afraid to say that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and that's true of all the Psalms, yeah. a lot of places in the Psalms. So I kind of always just uh, yeah. ask God to help me do that. Yeah. No, this, there's a song we used to sing when I was in college, I Will Give You All My Worship. And I always thought, we're just lying to God. In fact, the best thing ever, we had a, we had a Truth in Life conference, and there was a typo in the screen. And instead of worship, it said whoreship. W-H-O. And I'm like, that's finally accurate. You know, like, no, I'm not trying to be flippant. Read Ezekiel. I'm not being remotely flippant. Um, but I'm like, at least that's something I can get behind. Like, that's true. That's going to happen. But we, I'll give you all my worship. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I mean, unless we're thinking eschatologically, like in the new heavens and the new earth, in the eternal state, I will give you all my worship. Right now, my heart is fickle and double-minded and faint. But, but no, you read Psalm 19, like, I guess there's a way we can say that if we understand what we mean and we're not trying to fool ourselves, which the psalmist clearly isn't. For all of his boasts, the last verse, I've gone astray like a sheep, seek me. So within that, I mean, that's part of the other thing is you can, there's a um, relative sense of holiness that we can speak of that can exist within frail, feeble, straying people. You know, it's true, we're sinful through and through, but there's also true, there should be a growing level of holiness and a growing level of obedience that we can speak to and see, even while we're like sheep who stray, and even while we're weak and faint, you know? Um, I think sometimes we can, get, we can think so much of our weakness that just make any claim of growth, maturity, or strength sounds arrogant. Wouldn't it just be better just to say we're helpless, we're powerless? We're, well, you shouldn't be 10, 15 years into the faith, 
You should have some strength and maturity, right? I mean, not that you've reached where you're supposed to go, but you shouldn't be a baby in Christ 20 years in, right? Um, so anyway, sorry, I'm going off. Yes. Other thoughts, questions, complaints, or haikus? Greg. I guess I'd just like your help a little bit with the structure. Yeah. I mean, I'm impressed that the, this author is able to come up with all these words to begin with the same letter. Um, is this in part, um, I mean, it's, it's sort of seems like saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over, uh, just with slightly different, you know, with uh, using different words, obviously, uh, because we're starting with a different letter each time. Uh, is this... I mean, just give me a sense of this. Is this not to be meant uh, as a flowing... Um, it's not a narrative. It's just like you, you, could, you could read the first two letters and read the, the sixth and seventh letter, uh, and they would say similar things. There certainly is repetition of overarching thoughts. I, one of the things I hope we'll see, talk to me in five weeks or three or four weeks, is that each set of eight verses has a slightly different emphasis and a slightly different coming at it. So yeah, they're, they're utilizing similar overarching truths. Absolutely. God's word is good. God's word gives me strength. You know, how it's utilized, how he prays, how he reasons. I, we got to believe all of scripture is profitable. God doesn't waste space. And so my assumption be if, if that's partly why I read David Pallison's introduction. I can read a little bit more of it because he freely remarks that's the way many people think about it. And he, he is challenging that there's a lot more here than may initially meet the eye. Um, oh. Also, did I notice that one of them is two letters? Well, there's, there's a, there's, yeah, hey, and, is it hey and way? No. no. Sin and shin, sin and shin, Yes. And so what is that? It's just that's a, a person he, could, he couldn't come up with eight and no, I, no. I'm going to combine these it's, two. It's one letter that can be sounded different ways, different places. Greek is the same thing. Sigma can looks different at the end of a word, inside a word. It's, it's all it is. It's a vowel. It's not a vowel. Hebrew vowels are not written. Um, it's a consonant that depending on where it's in the word, it's going to look differently. That's all. Um, there's 22 letters in Hebrew. One of them serves double duty. Let, let me read a little bit more from Pallison. And uh, I, think, I think I can find a digital copy of this that I can print off for you guys. I, I, I found this a really helpful article. It's just an article, the lead article, it's maybe a dozen pages long. Yeah, 16 pages long. Let me just read a little bit more extensively from this. Um, when you hear the word Psalm 119, what are your first associations? Take 30 seconds and consider. I suspect that your heart did not immediately come up with the following joyous memories with, and anticipation. Psalm 19 is where I learn, where I go to learn, utter, and utterly appreciate. Uh, sorry, I'm, if I'm going to read something, I should read it slowly and clearly. Psalm 119 is where I go to learn, utter, and utterly appropriate honesty, where I learn how to open my heart about what matters to the person I most trust. 
I plainly affirm my most deeply love. I'm candid about my deepest ongoing struggles. I express pure delight. I lay the sufferings and uncertainties I face on the table. I cry out in need. I shout for joy. I say what I want and want what I say. I hear how to be forthright and without any strain of self-righteousness. I hear how to be weak without any strain of pity or self-pity. I learn how true honesty works with God, fresh, personal, direct. I doubt many of you thought that. Um, and then he goes on to describe what some of us might think. Here are some common um, reactions. Um, but other associations exist. There it is. Okay. Most people immediately react to Psalm 119 as this. It's long. Really long. If you're reading through Psalms or through the Bible in a year, you take a deep breath and retie your running shoes before you trudge, speed walk, or race through Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. By far. It's the same length as the entire book of Ruth or James or Philippians. Reading through Psalm 119 is too often like watching scenery along the interstate highway. You glimpse lots of things passing, but you mostly remember the long drive. Here's a second reaction. It's repetitive and general. The verses tend to blur together. They seem to say the same thing over and over in only slightly different ways with few details. In contrast, Ruth tells a moving story. James sparkles with practical application and metaphor. Philippians links wonders about Jesus Christ with details of Paul's experience and then connects both of these with direct implications for how you're to live. One way, to, one way or the other, the argument advances as these books go along, but Psalm 119 seems to go around and around, droning on in generalities. Here's another common reaction. The parts seem unconnected. You can remember things that unify around a storyline or some logical progression. Ruth's surprise loyalty to the Lord connects her to a mother-in-law, to a village, to a new husband, and to a great grandson, and ultimately to the Savior of the world. But Psalm 119 seems like a random collection of disconnected bits. Or perhaps this Bible fact is one of your associations that Psalm 119 is not random. It is a tightly structured acrostic. 22 sections, eight lines each, each line beginning with the same letter, proceeding in order through the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, but this fact has faint relevance for us who read in English. The alphabetic arrangement gets lost in translation. It makes no lasting impression, does no noticeable good. The very thing that gives this psalm order and structure functions for us little more than as a curiosity. Here's an association that's probably on everyone's list. It's about the word of God. That moves closer to something we can take home and live out. In Psalm 119, Scripture discusses Scripture. It has served well as a classic text on the importance of biblical fidelity, Bible knowledge, Bible reading, Bible study, Bible memorization. This vast chunk of the word of God mentions the significance of some form of that word in almost every verse. Then here's the part I read from in the sermon. And that's where a common negative reaction comes in. Many people feel and think queasy or burdened down when they approach this psalm. The seemingly relentless, read your Bible, Bible memorize, scripture emphasis could come across as moralistic, like the exhortations tacked on at the end of a bad sermon. Your relationship with the Lord seems to hinge on dutiful performance of quiet times to somehow... But somehow, you're always too busy or too distracted to ever get it right. Unlike the warm, intimate promises of people's favorite psalms, this psalm can seem biblistic. It has a repetition for, it has a reputation for substituting devotion to the Bible for devotion to the God who reveals himself in writing. 
This is a bad rap, of course, but it does accurately reflect how Psalm 119 is often misread, mistaught, or misused. He goes on. But I mean, this article's whole thing is basically, hey, reconsider it. And I'm hoping in the coming weeks you'll see it. So what you're saying, totally get that's absolutely, I think, the, the danger or the potential way of looking at it. I'm hoping in the coming weeks we'll see there's more to it than that. But that's absolutely a common enough thought and perception. The challenge for us needs to be, if, if I'm reading any part of the Bible, whether it's the eighth chapter in a row of genealogies in First Chronicles, apparently this is important for me to know. And if I don't see it as important, something's wrong with me. Open my eyes, Lord. I mean, it's Psalm 119 again. Open, help me see what's good, beautiful, right, and necessary about this, because this looks kind of... Or like, there's 20 chapters of land divisions in the middle of Joshua. 20 chapters of land divisions, which is apparently important for me to know. I'm not naturally inclined to get excited about that, which speaks poorly of me. Something's wrong in me. Because Joshua is probably one of the books Psalm 19 is written with in view, and he's really excited about all of it. So that, that would be my starting point. Fair enough, that is, the, that is the danger or a natural way of looking at it. And then, okay, Lord, help us to see more. And as we go through it, let's see if we can see more. Or if it does come down to just repeating itself. So, that fair enough? I'm just not, we're not five weeks in yet, so I can't, all I can say is I don't, I think there's more to it than that, but we'll see. Yes, sir. No, no, mic- microphone, microphone, microphone. For posterity's sake. Uh, I think when you look at uh, each one of the, um, what did you call it? Strophes. Strophes. Hadn't heard that before. Well, we'd think of a verse, but when we think of a verse, we mean like the entire verse of a song. Mm-hmm. In that sense, each strophe is a verse. Yeah. But since we also use verses for the little numbers and couplets, it's not helpful. So strophe is the Hebrew term for a, a chunk in a psalm. Thank you. Probably heard that, but didn't huh, remember it. But, you know, just looking at, at each strophe when it starts, if we pause at the comma or even... Like in Olive, uh, the first one, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, whose way is blameless, and then go down to bathe. How can a young man cleanse his way? I mean, just pause right there, and then let's go to the next <laughs> yeah. one. Gimel, deal bountifully me, with me, Lord. I mean, you know, if we just, if you start going through that whole thing, I, I was just running through it, and I yeah. was like looking, you know, um, hey, um, teach me, O Lord. Uh, see, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Well, comma there. You just, I mean, you know, I'm just looking yeah. at this and I'm like, wait, whoa, wait a minute, I didn't see that before. You know, at each one, there's a. You can pause and just really think on that yeah. from the last one. How can I be blameless? Well, you know, I need the Lord to teach me His way. Well, that's that's tied up with even the implications of the acrostic. It, we live in a, a uh, an image-based or a text-based culture, right, Zach? You know where I'm going with this, right? That's, yeah, yeah, postman. But in an oral culture, your Bible was what you had in your head. You'd go to the synagogue, you'd go to the meeting, and someone would get up and read the scroll, and you'd hope to walk away with as much as you could hold on to. But that... A people that are doing that are a people who are meditating and ruminating and thinking about 
scripture. They're doing the type of thing you're doing. We read and we want to get to the end. We read and we want to cover the distance or six pages or whatever. They're memorizing and meditating. That's like the Proverbs are kind of like, you know, those little like capsules kids have, you throw them in water and they grow. Those, you're meant to chew on a proverb and sort of open it up like origami to then packs. This little tiny nugget is huge. I think a lot of that's what's going on here. It's just sort of chewing on, meditating on, letting it sort of unpack itself as opposed to, um, you know, reading a story. Yeah, what happens next? What happens next? And so you think about like a ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. You chew on that for a while and you think about the implications of it. And it goes beyond just a woman, right, to anything of beauty, anything that stands of value, but without discretion, without prudence, what's the point? I mean, you just sort of chew. Anyway, just one proverb that comes to mind. Um, I have no particular reason why, but... Um, so anyway, yeah. Other, other thoughts, questions? But that's also, Greg, part of the reason why I wanted to do it once a month as opposed to going straight through 22 weeks. Even I thought 22 weeks of this might start to get old. So we're gonna get th- to time it with James, we've got to get through about three to five of the strophes. And then it won't necessarily be once a month because I'll want to do a chunk of James, get through a chunk of James, back to Psalm 119, get to the next chunk. And a chunk might be three or four weeks in James. And so I've broken James up into a teaching structure. And so we'll just do the next one. So hopefully by coming back once every three, four, five weeks, it will be fresh and not total repetitive. And so that's partly even the the plans. Otherwise, we'd be doing this for 22 weeks straight. And that could get, that could get monotonous. Not because God's word's monotonous, but because just focusing on, the, on that one psalm and only that one psalm for 22 weeks would, would be um, intense. Okay, other thought. Yes, Zach. With you talking about um, like really meditating on yeah. Scripture, um, that kind of reminded me of, or connected to when you were reading the thing from David Pallison of like, you're just trying to like kind of sprint through the psalm in a Bible reading plan. I think that reading through the Bible in a year is a really good thing, but I know it for myself. One of the dangers is, especially with the, you know, just in general, it's like, oh man, four to five chapters a day, depending on, you know, what Bible reading plan you're doing. I better be, you know, going at a pretty good pace to be able to fit that in every day. And so it becomes a little bit more about just finishing than actually comprehending, but especially with the sections that are more boring to not use a better word, but it's just like, okay, I just got to get through this chapter so I can, you know, make it through the Bible in a year. So I'm just kind of, you know, skimming through the laws in Leviticus or skimming through these genealogies and, or it's like, yeah, with this one, this is kind of repetitive. So I'll just kind of, you know, skim really quickly. And no, the, the, there's a couple things that we're accomplishing when we read our Bible through in a year. One of which is just good. We're, we're getting familiar with the Bible. Even if you don't understand it, right? Even if you don't know what on earth the story about Judah and Tamar is meant to convey. You know that it happened. You know it's there. And in that sense, a growing just familiarity with the Bible. You know, so you know, it's just, I don't know what to make of it, but those last eight chapters of Ezekiel talk about this crazy big deluxe temple. You know, like, you know it's there. The same familiarity you get with a movie you've watched three or four or five times, right? 
Um, so in one sense, that's good, just getting your hands around the, the Bible, biblical literacy, right? Um, but the other piece, and this is something John Piper talks about that I think is a really helpful way of looking at it, is even take the statements in Psalm 119, give me life according to your word. When I'm getting up in the morning, when I'm reading my Bible, this is what's, there's stuff here, there's, there's beauty and glory and truth here that I need to be faithful, that I need to not become weak, that I need to walk in his statutes. And so, Lord, I need to see something here that's beautiful and encouraging, something that's true and right and good. And trying to find something to hold on to, and he, he, he likens it to like a lozenge. You know, you've got a sore throat, and you, you, you got the fisherman's friend or whatever. And as you sort of, um, you know, suck on it and move it, it's just constantly giving good soothing stuff down your throat all the time that you're, you know, unless you're chewing on it, right? Um, but that's the thing about Fisherman's Friend. You don't want it. That's like a menthol bomb in your mouth. Those things are awesome. Don't chew it. But um, in the same way, you've you got this passage, something you've seen, something that's beautiful, something like, oh, that's interesting or convicting, whatever, and you're chewing on it and you're considering it. And so throughout the day, it's, it's giving strength and help and grace to you. So when you're reading your Bible, on the one hand, there is something good about getting through four or five chapters, because otherwise no one's ever going to know the history of Israel. Right, Jake? There you go. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. Um, But hopefully try to find something, probably small bite size to chew on throughout the day as well, you know? Um, I I remember one of the times I was reading Psalm 19, I underlined it, the sum of your word is truth. I just love that word, that picture of like a math equation where you add things up and what's the total truth the sum total of your word truth i just thought that was really cool and i just would walk around just sort of the sum the entirety you add it all up there's no dross in it there's there's no um weak stuff in it it's just through and through 100 percent truth um that's encouraging. I mean, so you just find something or we're going through the gospel some excellency of who god is or who jesus is but in your Bible reading, you want to grow in your familiarity of the Bible, but you also, day by day, moment by moment, want to be holding on to beautiful, true things, because that's how we get sanctified. If you go to 2 Corinthians um, 4, right? And yes, this, past deal, this passage deals with masks or veils, but we're not going to go there. Um, no, three. 2 Corinthians 3, sorry. Um, pick it up in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant... The same veil remains unlifted. So now we're talking about Bible reading. How do you explain millions of Jews who read and memorize the Torah and don't love Jesus? But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day... Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So I get the idea that the veil here is in reference to seeing Scripture and understanding it, right? They're not seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. 
And the reason isn't because Jesus isn't there. It's because they have a veil. Because their hearts are unbelieving. Um, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So there's a model for sanctification. You see glory in God's word. The veil is removed. You see glory, and it changes you. And, and um, presumably you apply it, you, you internalize it, you live it out, and then you come back and you see some more glory, and you get changed again. So how do we grow? We grow from one degree of glory to another as we behold glory. And so that psalm, open my eyes that I behold wondrous things in your word, from Psalm 119, verse 18, to me is directly tied to sanctification of my growth as a Christian. And so when you do your Bible reading in the morning, Pray, God, help me to see something beautiful, something glorious, something convicting, encouraging, instructive, challenging. Whatever you need me to see that I need to, you know what I need to be changed. You know how I need to be, be, to be broken down and built back up. Um, and, and seeing, I need, sort of like Jacob wrestling with the angel, I'm not letting you go to you, bless me. Like, I'm not putting this down till I see glory, till I see something encouraging. And being honest, just as the psalmist is here, instead of pretending it, if you're reading it, like, I see no glory. I see more glory in the morning news and Facebook. Okay, incline my heart, then cry out, Lord, incline my heart to your ways. It's not. Open my eyes, because I'm not seeing anything beautiful. Like, beyond, like, one of the things I like about this psalm is he's not pretending. He's not faking it till he makes it. But he does recognize, that's what I need. I I need to see glory. I need my heart inclined. I need you to direct my heart to your precepts. And, you know, 2 Corinthians 4 makes it clear. This is an integral piece of how we grow. Jake in the back. I think we need to be mindful of not undervaluing holding God's word in our minds. Like you were talking about, Christians today have more access to God's word Every one of us owns several Bibles, most likely. You can listen to it. Um, you know, there's, there's so many ways we can get exposure to it, but that's not the same as having it in your head. And the first thing that I think of is Solomon, who part of his wisdom was that he had thousands of parables in his mind that he could recall to memory. And there's a difference. I was thinking about this when Zach was talking about, you know, reading through something and getting through a lot of the material, but then, like, is there any part of it that you could usefully bring to mind in a moment of great need. And um, so that, that's different. Although we have more access to Scripture now than, you know, at almost any time, are we holding it in our minds? Um, are, are we memorizing useful parts of it? It's not the same, you know. Um, Jesus, other, Jesus, other religion- Jesus fought temptation from the book of Deuteronomy. Yes. And um, some of that's to our shame because other religions, Islam comes to mind, makes great emphasis of memorizing the text. So, you know, there is something useful and beautiful about having that in your mind, not, not, on, not on your phone, not, you know, not well, somewhere just, we can just easily take, get take to it. Just the implications of Jesus' temptation, Luke 4, right? Jesus did not say, I got it written down somewhere. I know there's a passage in Deuteronomy. That he was able to fight temptation in the moment because he was able to quote and directly reference God's word in the moment. If the sinless Son of God fights temptation this way, how much more ought we? Right? Because Luke 4 comes after Luke 2, where Jesus, because, sorry, I'm teaching Luke now, but this, 
this, this good stuff. Um, I had a professor, McDougal. He, he was Canadian, and he had a, friend, he had a Irish accent, too. He had a weird accent. It was a weird mix of, like, Canadian and French. I mean, not Irish. And he would talk about how we would deify Jesus' humanity and humanify his deity. And precisely in the wrong way. So Luke, the way Luke, think, again, think of the text like a screenplay or a, a camera. We're zooming in. Luke's the only gospel that gives us any information about Jesus' interaction, any words in his mouth prior to the baptism. Only gospel. What does he show us? He shows us Jesus going to the temple, and night and day, three days, he's sitting at the feet of the teachers, asking them questions and giving them answers. When he, what's he doing? He's learning. He, he brackets that text with the child grew in wisdom and favor with God and man. And the same statement at the beginning and the end, like, he brackets the account with, here's Jesus learning, growing. And so we're to see, this is a child who put humongous emphasis on studying and learning his Bible. So when we get to chapter 4, and we see him quote Deuteronomy, we're not supposed to think, well, of course he's God. We're supposed to think, oh, of course he studied his tail off. That's what we're supposed to think. We're supposed to think, here is the fruit of that study. Here is the fruit of that work. Jesus could have been doing other things in Jerusalem during the Passover, and he stayed in the temple day and night studying from those teachers. And then we see his mastery of Scripture. But we tend to say, oh, no, it's because he's God. Luke wants us to conclude, no, it's because he was diligent to study. So if that's how, just like Luke wants us to see Jesus pray in preparation for things. How does Jesus survive the temptation in the garden? He prayed. Why does Peter fail? He didn't. He fell asleep. That's how Luke frames it, and he wants us to see that. So... If the sinless son of God put that much work into the study of scripture and we see how it enabled him to perfectly obey, how much more should we? But as a cop out, we're like, well, no, he didn't sin because he was God and God can't sin. Luke wants to show us how God didn't sin. And the way God didn't sin is he studied and treasured God's word in his heart. And he has left a pattern for us to follow. So that's my big way of saying amen, Jake. Amen. I think we're at time. One last question. Anything before we go? I think we're at time. I can let you go a minute early if there's anything. Anybody? You are dismissed. God bless.